welcome to this HemeCast on trauma, pain memories and post-traumatic stress disorder. I'm delighted to be joined today by Sarah Whitaker, who's a clinical psychologist, and Anna Wells, who is the physiotherapist, both from Basingstoke Haemophilia Centre, who are going to talk about work that they've been doing with people with haemophilia and other bleeding disorders around trauma and pain memory. So I'm Sarah Whitaker and I'm a clinical psychologist. I work in the Basingstoke Haemophilia team, but we cover a really big patch with the Southern Haemophilia Network. So that comes across to Portsmouth, Salisbury, Bournemouth and Poole and Winchester as well. Hi, I'm Anna Wells, physiotherapist and like Sarah, I'm based in Basingstoke, but work across the Southern Haemophilia Network. Thank you. So today we're going to be talking about haemophilia um, and obviously the other allied bleeding disorders, pain, pain memories and trauma. And Sarah, we were briefly talking about this the other day when we were talking about doing some education for haemophilia nurses around traumatic experience and how those linger mm. in the minds of people with haemophilia and mm. disorders and perhaps we don't pay them enough regard would you like to expand a little bit on that absolutely i i think it's also that we don't always even recognize them as traumas sometimes why we've started thinking about this a lot more is where there's been a couple of instances of people thinking that they have a needle phobia but when we really track it back to what the root causes or when this started, it feels like it comes much more from a traumatic experience. PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, is a particular mental health condition that comes when you feel like you've experienced a, a life-threatening event. And it doesn't matter whether that really was life-threatening or not, it's how it felt to you at the time. There are obvious examples of when that can happen if you've been in a a massive car accident or a terrorism attack or a natural disaster these big t traumas but trauma and traumatic stress can develop after what we call small t traumas which is lots of little experiences that really build up cumulatively over time where you were under threat or things were painful or distressing and many people with health, chronic health conditions or long-term health conditions will have experienced that in their life. Numerous hospital visits, not always understanding what treatments they were having with the co-infected blood, all the psychological issues and stress and distress that's happened around that, that builds up. And so trauma feels like it's got a really important role in understanding how people with um, haemophilia or other bleeding disorders may be feeling. And that's what we're really trying to start to unpick a bit more and to look at in greater depth. And so you two just described beautifully how you've got a marvellous multidisciplinary care team in your haemophilia centre that involves a psychologist. So for the vast majority of people that don't have that luxury in inverted commas, how would we recognise this and what would we do about it? And this is the thing because it can show up, trauma can show up so broadly in, in so many different ways. And historically... Anna and I were talking about this just earlier. Historically, healthcare medicine has been very divisive between this is a physical health problem and this is a mental health problem and the two never shall meet. But actually trauma, we're, we're one whole body. Trauma can show up emotionally, 
physically, in, in all sorts of different ways. There are three main types of symptoms of PTSD or trauma. One is re-experiencing, and that's the most typical symptom that people recognize where you involuntary and vividly relive a traumatic experience or a, a variety of traumatic experiences and it might be flashbacks or nightmares but it also might just be repetitive or distressing images um, or memories and physical sensations like pain sweating feeling sick or, or, or trembling and I think pain memories we're going to talk about a bit more specifically because that, that can be such an important way that it shows up. We've also got emotional numbing or avoidance. So trying to bury that down, trying not to think about it. And then finally, hyper arousal, which one one of those very silly medical psychological words that's really just <laughs> means feeling on edge. You know, constantly having that sense of anxiety or that you're aware of threats or you might be really easily startled so if your friends joke that they can make you jump very easily you're on that sort of hyper aroused state and it can lead to irritability being angry sleeping problems so there's this really broad way that it might show up but we do need to tune into it and we need to ask about it so healthcare professionals we really need to be asking about it and people who, who've been through these traumas who need to look at these things if you're having problems in work and relationships can you talk about this with your healthcare team can you join together and think about whether looking at this from a trauma perspective might be helpful and so Anna, I can see you nodding there. Do you think <laughs> this is something that you pick up perhaps in your physiotherapy assessment, some treatment sessions where perhaps you're just having a bit of a chat uh, with yeah. people and they tell you things that perhaps they're not going to tell the doctor in their 15 minute consultation? Definitely. I think as a physiotherapist, we obviously spend a lot of time looking at joints and muscles and the physical aspects of things. But obviously there's a lot of talking that goes along as well and we I was going to say have the luxury but of, of getting to know our patients very well because we see them year in year out so we build up that clinical relationship and yeah he talk about a lot of different things other than the physical and the anatomical and I think discussions I've had with Sarah over the last sort of couple of years it's really how when we see people in clinic and we talk about the physical side of things we talk about bleeding we talk about arthropathy and we do talk about pain but often pain is related to bleeding and arthropathy and that's a closed discussion almost it was interesting I was listening to your first um, couple of podcasts about we don't ask and they don't tell and about asking the questions that matter and Sarah recommended a book to me a couple of years ago called The Body Keeps the Score. And it's really about that. If you only ask about physical health problems, you're only going to talk about physical health problems. Us as clinicians, physical health clinicians predominantly, we're comfortable talking about that. And our, the people who come to see us are comfortable talking to us. That's what they expect from us. So suddenly, if you sort of think, actually, what are the other side of What's the other side of the coin? We've got physical health, mental health, two sides of the problem. How do we have those conversations and how do we change those clinic reviews so that they are more meaningful? And actually, we try and find out more about what the problem is rather than just physical and anatomical. Great. So I was just thinking while you were talking then about the impact of haemophilia beyond or bleeding disorder beyond the person who actually has it 
and mm. how it really does impact across families and generations and siblings and parents and everybody doesn't it and how do we bring them into this equation and is it our role if the person is say somebody's dad that doesn't have a bleeding disorder themselves or isn't carrying the haemophilia gene or anything is that still our responsibility mm, isn't that an important conversation it's the impact of bleeding disorder is far-reaching and therefore bleeding disorder teams are the best placed people to to work with that there are issues aren't there around how do you even track those people how do they show up in in your clinic if they're not got a clear diagnosis themselves carers family members partners children aunts and uncles this is really far-reaching and certainly one thing we've noticed is with the infected blood inquiry that stuff that emotional memories, distress, those sorts of things that may have been lying quietly in rest for a number of years, not necessarily affecting someone's day-to-day -day life. Suddenly when it's in the news, it's in the media, suddenly people in your social circle might know that someone in your family had haemophilia, but oh, now there's questions about AIDS and hep C and really intrusive potentially questions starting to be asked about that and the amount of information that comes with no predictability as well that it just pops into your news feed without necessarily you wanting it at that time because you're in the middle of making tea or getting ready for bed and wanting to have a, a good night's sleep not just people who have haemophilia but their wider circles of family and friends and social networks can be really affected by this and the memories and the experiences can be really set off and where do the, if you're not under a haemophilia center where do you go for help with that and I think that's even more important maybe because there isn't that natural place to to go to to talk in an ideal world you would you would be able to phone up and have an appointment and meet with the MDT and, and kind of talk through these things but I guess the reality is it isn't there at the moment. And I think that's quite interesting. So the, with the public inquiry at the moment, even for families who you might think were not affected by the past contaminated in, in treatments, can have been. So I'm just thinking of a, a family that I know of who the mother's great uncle or some distant relative had received contaminated blood and then she had a baby with haemophilia. And although she wasn't affected as a child or anything, she didn't really know what was going on now for her, seeing all of the stuff all the time about the inquiry in her newsfeed, as you said, and knowing that she is infusing her own child is causing her significant distress. Mm -hmm. And it is a trauma, even though she knows that actually this isn't an issue for her child now. That's mm -hmm. really hard to overcome, I think, all these traumas that we perhaps don't see. Yeah. And I can imagine how that thought, that sounds so, so awful, doesn't it? That thought that you can have this thought every time you're giving someone, I might be giving my child HIV. But actually, you know, how I would work with thoughts is looking at not what the content is, what the thought is, but how it impacts on her. I don't know this person, but someone might have that thought and become really distressed by this avoid giving the treatment, really worried and anxious, and, and that could go to a very unhealthy place. But another person might be able to go, actually, I have this thought, I know that it's 
I know that the reality around it is that the products are much safer and I feel much more confident. I just have this thought every time. And so what I'd be doing maybe is seeing whether we could get to the point where, yes, that thought bubbles up and she can almost predict it's going to happen, but she can choose how much to engage with it or not, how close to get to it or not. Um, or whether just experience it as background noise, as the sort of white noise that used to be on radios that just can be there, but you can still ground yourself, send yourself, be in this moment here now and do what you need to do to, to look after your child. So we need to normalise some of these thoughts and feelings and experiences. It makes sense that you've got this going on inside you, this internal weather but you have a choice about how much it affects you or not. And sometimes being able to just recognise that can help free people up a lot more. Obviously doing it in a validating and way, but not dismissing it, but just to say that thought, it's okay to have that thought. It makes sense. And I think that's really a nice um, way of showing that those kind of chatty conversations that we have with people that are not about your right knee or your left ankle are really important because that's where you pick up on these little snippets that they tell you that are clearly really important mm -hmm. but if we don't ask and they don't tell as we've said before we never get to know yeah we need to listen really listen and un unpick be curious be a little bit nosy <laughs> that's a good skill to have the other thing just to think about is the fact that trauma can affect healthcare professionals too and I think that goes unrecognized a lot. And in many ways, some healthcare professionals still working were working during the time of the co-infections and that in and of itself directly can be traumatizing. And that's important to note, notice and look out for. But also people can be traumatized, what we call vicariously, which means when you're constantly listening to traumatic experiences that other people have had, and that becomes a big part of how you spend your day, then that can actually become internalized and become traumatic in its own way to you. So it's still important if, if whether whoever you are, if you're working within a, a field or live within a field where there are, are traumatic experiences, just to take care of yourself and to be aware of how you're feeling and how this might be affecting you. So I think perhaps one of the good things that's come out of COVID, if there is ever such a thing, is that people seem to be much more aware of mental health issues and certainly it's being talked about much more in the press is that a good thing or is that a bad thing <laughs> oh I think it's got to be a good thing it's breaking down taboos it's making it it's normalizing it we all have mental health and we need to work on it and build our resilience and when things are difficult and we're not feeling that our mental health is in the best state to be able to talk about it to get help to access it is is got to be a good thing and I know reminded me of this upsetting statistic that in haemophilia only what's that how many percent? eight out of 37 so just 21 percent of commissioned haemophilia services in the UK have adequate psychology provision so we need to be broadening how we start to look at this it's not necessarily going to be a psychologist in your clinic there being able to pick this up we all need to be paying attention to it so the more that it's in the current media there are times when it's not helpfully represented in the current media but that's the same with absolutely anything but yeah kind of looking at reputable sources and understanding how we can talk about mental health how we can talk about 
just how are you doing? What's going on? How are you feeling? Really open-ended questions can start to unpick, give people a, a forum to, or permission to talk about it. If we don't ask, we don't hear. I think that's really strikingly obvious. I think we talk about mental health when we think somebody's got a problem with their mental mm -hmm. health. We don't do that about their physical health. We say to people, how are you? And if you say, oh, I've got a sore back or whatever, people say, well, what do you do? Nobody ever says, oh, I'm feeling a bit depressed. We need to be much more open and flexible about how we engage in those conversations with people um, and then recognising when we need to do something more as yeah. a healthcare provider, professional, that is outside of our scope of practice. So I am not a psychologist, but I can still talk to people about if they're okay or not. Yeah. And it's that finding the way and setting people on the right pathway if they need more support, isn't it? And the thing is, it's also recognising that people are allowed to feel upset, allowed to cry and to feel emotional pain and to you know, be low and anxious and stressed, that these are all completely normal feelings because someone cries in a clinic appointment doesn't mean that they need to see a psychologist or they need to be referred to somebody. It's okay just to have that experience and to be able to just support them through it. You don't necessarily have to do anything, but yeah, knowing if it feels like that person, that person feels like they need further help or you feel like they do as well, how can you identify them? the best places for that if you've got a psychologist in service fantastic if you're one of those eight <laughs> then you've got someone that you can talk to about it but there are also there are other mental health services that that are open to all so you know exploring your local ones in your local area would be the best option how when you have identified somebody that has a trauma do you then deal with it as a psychologist or within your team that's it we do it in a multidisciplinary way because it's not just a psychologist role and Anna and I have been doing some wonderful work to really try and bring together the, the whole person body and the mind and treat as one in a nutshell the main psychological therapies um, for trauma are EMDR in eye movement desensitization and reprocessing the person who came up with that said that if she had her time again she'd never call it that again but EMDR it is because it's been that for a while now it's a very evidence-based treatment for trauma it can be very effective there's CBT that's trauma focused as well that a lot of people might use and some desensitization work and that's where Anna and I have crossed over a lot in terms of helping people to start to expose themselves to the things that trigger off their anxiety and their stress and their trauma and how to do that in a way that using the, the psychological skills that we're working together to build up like grounding being in the present moment you know, not jumping back to the original trauma but being here and now using mindfulness relaxation breathing all the toolkit that we work up in, in therapy sessions and then how to take that forward so that in appointments or in potentially triggering situations, how can they manage more effectively? And I think that's been a really, really good way to start to approach this. Yeah, I agree completely. I think, as we said earlier, mental health, physical health, it overlaps so much. And when you look at lots of issues that we need to, to deal with, pain being one of them, I look at it from my physical hat and Sarah looks at it with her psychology hat. And I think there should be much more. I would love for there to be much more combined working because I think it just works really well. And I think there's a whole wealth in the middle of 
that sort of picture of physical health, mental health, that we just don't know. We just don't know what's there yet. And it's that thing of what are we going to know in 10 years? What are we going to know in 20 years? But let's look at this slightly differently and let's do things slightly differently and, and see where we, we go. And we've had some really great results already with some of the work that we're doing together. And then obviously maintaining confidentiality. Could you expand on that a little bit? What have you been doing? So the main, so yes, what we've been doing is I've been doing EMDR with some people, which basically means it's all in the media at the moment. It's a lot, I think people are a lot more aware of it thanks to Harry actually demonstrating it. So basically you go back to some of your traumatic experiences and you think through them and stay with them. And then we do something called bilateral stimulation, which again is one of these ridiculously over the top words, but you might move your eyes whilst you're doing it, or you might tap your body. The person, me or another psychologist would run through how to do that. And by doing that, it helps reprocess the the memories from this sort of fragmented, traumatic, stress-inducing memory to hopefully one that is more settled. I guess it's a bit like a snow globe when you shake it up and all the glitter kind of goes floating around and rushing around and getting in the way of everything and and at the end of it it's still there you haven't forgotten anything you haven't you've not got amnesia it's not um gone away but it's just settled and it's not causing so much interference in in daily life and then where we overlap with physio and psychology is bringing that sort of body aspect into that work as well because it isn't always or emotional feelings that show up in when there's trauma as the book that Anna mentioned before and and the author Bessel van der Kolk uh, said the body keeps the score this is where trauma exists and so being able to identify and work with pain and know where it's coming from and when you don't know where it's coming from and when it's got traumatic roots how to weave that into your work as well because pain is a it's the most aversive experience it's the one that you are supposed to pull back from and back off because if you've broken something and it's hanging off by a limb you need to not walk on it (laughs) that's okay but when pain doesn't really have that route it comes from more of a traumatic experience then we need to work differently with it and that's where Nana and I are finding ways to overlap a lot more so Anna from a physio perspective how do you find that really interesting I think for a while as I briefly said earlier I felt a bit frustrated as physios we kind of want to fix things and people will come and see us and they've got pain and we can't fix it and so I think it's trying to see actually what else can we offer are we actually offering everything we could no we're probably not there are other things that we can do and other things so it's added an extra dimension to that And I think there's a lot there. I've done a little bit of work looking at these things called pain memories and looking in the literature. And it really struck a chord in that there are a couple of um, papers in particular, one which was just a case study, single case study, but it was pain itself was the stressor, the thing that caused PTSD symptoms many years down the line. And for that instance, it just struck a chord as to these are the sorts of things that I'm hearing from the people I work with in that they were stuck the wrong side of London or they were stuck somewhere and they couldn't get their factor. So there was a prolonged period of time where pain, significant pain was an issue. And you sort of think maybe this might relate to the people that 
that we see. And there was a big study done which looked at people who had a diagnosis of PTSD, but it found that almost half of them experienced these pain memories or pain flashbacks. And for the people that um, were in the study, there wasn't a physical or anatomical cause for the pain at that point in time, but they were experiencing pain, somatic pain in the here and now when talking about these experiences. And it just made me think, obviously, the people we see, yes, we've got, there's arthropathy. Yes, there are other causes of pain. There's inflammation. There's other things going on. But actually, what's the impact of, you know, this potential other mechanism where it's not a nociceptive pathway, there's potentially something with memory, and that's causing a sort of wind up of the pain or helping to drive that pain and ramp it up. If we can tap into this, if we can find out more about this, then surely that's going to help. And so a couple of things. First, I don't know that I've ever thought about or heard people in the bleeding disorders community being diagnosed with post-traumatic stress. So do you think that we are not diagnosing it or that we're calling it something else? If we then do diagnose it what are we going to do about it so I think there's two levels I think there's PTSD or trauma signs and symptoms so a slightly lower threshold than you would get for a full sort of psychological diagnosis of PTSD I think there is a lot a lot of that anecdotally we will see with the people we see day in day out I think for the full diagnosis which has to come from a clinical psychologist and a a sort of formal assessment in that sense I think there will be I don't know Sarah what what's your opinion on prevalence in my very narrow experience having only worked in this field for a couple of years during COVID as well certainly that I think there's more than that we necessarily recognize and I think partly because that sh- it shows up in such different ways and because people maybe don't talk about it or because people have been managing very well because of certain you know things like the inquiry things like new types of treatments becoming available uh, uh, that feel perhaps quite different because of their mode of delivery or their you know length of lasting because of things like gene therapy too all of these questions about the bigger impact about our identities as people and if hemophilia features in that or bleeding disorder features in that how does that kind of potentially affect your sense of self these deeper questions start to be asked and then as you rightly said Kate before this sort of wider acknowledgement of mental health so we're becoming more aware of it so I suspect there's a lot more than is currently identified but I'd probably say that of any part of our community and our, our society that there are lots more mental health issues and the question is it does it get in the way is it getting in the way of you living your life and if the answer is no then if it ain't broke don't fix it But if it is, if it's having an impact on relationships or work or if it's stopping you from um, giving yourself treatment or going to the doctor's appointments and the medic appointments when you need to, if if it's making it really difficult to connect with um, the nurses and talking to them about your veins and having blood tests and all that, then that's that's the time to do something about it. And that's when I think diagnoses matter more. What about needle phobia, Sarah? I know you touched on it a little bit. 
So needle phobia, where it's shown up and people have um, identified themselves or teams have identified that an individual has what, what we think might be a needle phobia is when perhaps they might be quite avoidant of coming to clinic appointments. There's a lot of fear about what might happen. Are you going to take blood today or not? Are you going to take blood today or not? And or perhaps shaking when either administering treatment or, or taking blood, sweating, really getting quite anxious. So those sorts of symptoms can be thought of as needle phobia. But sometimes those things I can think of people I've spoken to, that's only in certain contexts, in certain environments. If they're doing it at home alone, it's not like that. It's when there's other people doing it. And I think that starts to then unpick. It's probably not a needle phobia because it's okay when you're doing it at home. It's just when you've got someone else. Or maybe it's okay for your the haemophilia team to do it, but not if you had to go to A&E or be in another department. Or it's okay if it's this sort of needle or cannula, but it's not if it's that. When there's those sorts of contingencies or different perspectives and then then I think it's useful to unpick it a bit more and explore it a little bit more what is it about needles then actually it just reminds me of this time where something awful happened and I was young and nobody would listen to me and I knew something wasn't right but they just kept doing it anyway and and the trauma that comes with that yeah not just giving something a label and then working to that label because that's not necessarily correct and I think if you're the parent of a child who has needle phobia the expectation from us that they will continue to treat those children at home is is huge and it can cause all kinds of issues and you're right quite often it is that they're just the children don't want that vein used they want this vein used or they want a different colored butterfly Mm -hmm. or things that are relatively easy to fix without giving them that label and making it very difficult for the family yeah and to see that Part of what can be traumatic is when you feel like you don't have control over anything. You're out of control. Something's being done to you. That's particularly relevant in healthcare. Other people are coming and doing things. And and you might even intellectually know that these other people are doing it to help you, to make you better, to help you feel better. And yet you can still, still get traumatised by it. And if we think about what health, going to a healthcare hospital or a ward is, particularly at the moment when everyone's got masks on and it's really deep, deep personalized really and there's bright lights and maybe you're on high levels of pain medication and so not totally cognitively present so might be a little bit altered in that way then memories do get laid down very differently and it has the potential to be done in that kind of fragmented broken and therefore quite upsetting potentially way uh, that can lead to trauma. So Anna what do you then do as as the physio that complements everything that Sarah tells us that she's doing in terms of the psychological. I think the biggest thing is having an awareness of it and asking the questions and not being scared to ask the questions, not being scared of the answers, being aware of how comfortable people are in terms of talking about things. But also, as you mentioned earlier, Kate, knowing where your boundaries are as a professional. I'm not a psychologist. I will never be a psychologist. Yet I can have conversations with people that will hopefully help in terms of that overall healthcare and that partnership that you have with people it's 
it's having that, again, going back to that initial couple of podcasts of that sort of paternalistic relationship that often healthcare was, probably still is to a certain extent, unfortunately, but it's it should be much more around a partnership. And for us as physios, obviously looking at the, the physical, looking at the anatomical, but having an awareness of all the other aspects, knowing where your your limits are, but not being scared to ask questions. And then, so is this service that you're delivering at the moment to your patients, is this part of your routine service or is this a project that you're doing, some kind of audit service evaluation or what are you up to? It's a bit of both, really. I think our, our regular clinics have evolved a little bit. And so myself and Sarah will often break off from the main clinic room and see people together. So I'll do my physio bit and Sarah. And so we'll do that physical health, mental health part together. So that's part of our routine clinical practice, really, uh, now. And that's partly come from co- practicalities with COVID, hasn't it? When when people come to an MDT appointment, we might have used to be all in one room together, squashed in like sardines. And because we can't do that with social distancing, it does tend to naturally go that Anna and I might be in a room together and the nurse and, and the doctor might be in a room together. So it's come from a practical base place, really, but, but it seems to be working well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think we we started doing a little bit of joint working in terms of specific people who we wanted to try a few things with before COVID and we're picking that up again now. And in terms of projects, I'm looking at doing some research into this idea of pain memories and how that could affect the current pain experience. And not PTSD as a diagnosis as such, but those sort of signs and symptoms of PTSD. And obviously with Paul McLaughlin and all of his research that he's doing, I've had um, many conversations with him about it. And it's, yeah, I think an area that that we need to do more work in. And, And so from, I think that's a really great thing to be trying to do it going forwards, but from the people that you've done some work with so far, have you seen a difference? Yeah, I think so. And it's like with anything, I think it's, a lot of what, what both myself and Sarah will do within clinic is building those clinical relationships and that sort of, this is what we as professionals, this is our toolbox, this is what we can offer, these are the sorts of conversations we can have and empowering the people who we work with to then know when the right time is for them, for physio and psychology or, or a, a mixture of the two because I think it's it's something that's it has to be the right time. Definitely when it comes to physio, you can say, oh, you could do these exercises and these will help. And the person says, actually, I don't really want to. That's lovely. But no, it has to be the right time for that person to, to want to look into whether it's tools or one-to-one work or combined work or whatever it is. It's got to be the right time. Uh, you, this work isn't easy. It takes time. It takes effort in terms of trying new things or doing things differently. And it has a, it does have an emotional cost. If we use that snow globe metaphor again, things get shaken up and sometimes it can feel quite unsettling for a while. And so it's about, as Anna said beautifully, it's about having uh, a clarity about what can we offer, what can healthcare offer, but empowering people to make their own choices about when and if and when that's the right time for them and what we can do to support them and I think that's a really key thing to take away actually is that 
we can't enforce anything on people with bleeding disorders because we know we've tried to do that before and they come along and they sit there and nothing changes it's very much about when it is the right time for them and we have to be um, aware of that and able to respond when they tell us that now is the right time for me thank you very much to both sarah and anna there for what was i think a very interesting introduction to understanding trauma and pain memories and the impact that has on the people we work with I'd like to thank you for listening and once again would like to thank our sponsors for making Heemcast possible.